0: It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 181 for February 21st, 2010. Recorded February 19th, 2010 in 64-bit land. Last week, I promised a report on my move from 32-bit Windows to 64-bit Windows. Had I made that move 20 years ago, I would have been at the extreme leading edge. Had I made the move 10 years ago, I would have still been in a tiny minority of forward-thinking computer users. Even coming to 64-bit computing at this late date, I'm still in a small minority of users. It's different here in 64-bit land you'll need to make that move someday, and you should at least consider whether that someday should be when you buy a computer to replace your current computer. Everybody doesn't need the advantages of 64-bit computing today, but eventually software developers will stop supporting 32-bit operating systems. This isn't a change that's going to come quickly. After all, it's been 20 years since the first 64-bit desktop systems went on the market, and 64-bit computing has actually been around since the 1960s. The primary benefits 64-bit hardware and operating systems provide is the increase in the maximum amount of system memory. A 32-bit version of Windows can address between 3 and 4 gigabytes of RAM, and a single standard process is limited to about 2 gigabytes. The theoretical limit for 64-bit hardware is 16 exabytes, but Windows limits the maximum allowable memory to 128 gigabytes of RAM. And good luck finding hardware that'll take that much, and good luck paying for it if you find the hardware. A 64-bit operating system makes working with large data sets in applications such as digital video, digital photo editing, scientific calculations, and large databases faster, a lot faster. I found that the 64-bit system is far faster and more responsive than my aging 32-bit system, the one it replaced. And that retired computer was no slouch. Granted, it was four years old, but it was a dual-core 3 gigahertz CPU, 2 gigabytes of RAM. Frequently, though, it ground to a halt with excessive disk activity. What caused this seemed a mystery at the time, but in retrospect, I believe I know what was happening and why the new computer is so much faster. When I say ground to a halt, what I mean is that sometimes several seconds would elapse between the time I pushed a key in Microsoft Word and the time that letter appeared on the screen. What I found was Process ID 4 was attempting to write between 50 and 100 megabytes of data per second to one of the hard drives. Process ID 4 is owned by the system, so I didn't have much visibility into what was making the system calls or why. Process ID works with a lot of other processes. Here's a clue, though. It's normal for me to have a lot of processes running. For example, the BAT, my email program, Firefox, with typically 10 to 15 sites open, and about 28 add-ins. Opera, I'll usually have several sites open there. Dreamweaver, Outlook for office email, Excel, UltraEdit, Snagit, Groove, OneNote, and I am Conversation with Digsby. Background tasks include Norton Internet Security, Unlocker, KeyPass, Huey, LogMeIn in Server Mode, Flix, Macro Express Pro, Google Calendar Sync, Always Sync, and Carbonite. And in addition to those, Windows is running dozens of services on its own. What happens when the system is loaded down like that is that it runs out of RAM and writes some of the computer's operating state to memory as it switches from task to task. This is called swapping, and it's normal. But when a lot of applications all need system resources, the swapping happens continuously. I suspect the disk activity was primarily a result of swapping. So the extra speed and responsiveness might be a result of the 64-bit processor versus 32-bits. Or it could be the i7 quad-core processor that uses hyperthreading to look like 8-cores sometimes. Or it could be the overall faster speed of the CPU... But the primary driver here might be and probably is 8 gigabytes of RAM instead of 2. Process ID 4 used to consume 100% of a disk drive and sometimes 100% of two drives. Consuming 100% of C made the system extremely slow. Consuming 100% of two drives made it entirely unusable. Now process ID 4 rarely hits more than 3% of drive capacity, and in fact a lot of the time disk load cruises along at about a 1% load process ID 4 may be running 100 to 150 threads, but it's effectively taking 0% of the CPU, and the overall load is about 5%. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not the world's fastest gamer style machine, but I think it's going to be able to do magic with graphical applications, website development and things like that. Work, in other words. I have, for many years, recommended dealing with smaller computer assemblers instead of companies like Dell, HP, and the like. This purchase, I think, reveals why. I arrived at the computer shop around 10 o'clock on Friday morning. The machine had already been built, and Windows 7 had been installed. I did some disk partitioning, installed Ubuntu Linux to dual boot with Windows. It took only three tries to get the partitioning right. And then I installed some applications that I wanted to test before taking the machine home. After that, I gave Warren Mitt's approval to move a DVD burner and three disk drives from the old machine to the new machine. When that was complete, he dressed the cables very neatly and sent me on my way a little after 2.30 in the afternoon. And yes, you did hear me right. I worked on the computer while it was being assembled. As I said to Warren, I can just imagine the response of a customer called HP or Dell and asked to stop by and work on their computer while it was being built, or even just to come in and watch their computer being built. TCR will never match the low-end, low-ball prices you'll get from HP or Dell for the machines they advertise. But the big guys rarely sell computers at those advertised prices because the low-end, low-ball machine isn't a computer that anyone would really want to use. TCR will build a computer to my, or your, exact specifications, and that may mean reusing some old parts. And the computer will more than outlast the company's three-year warranty. TCR services most brands of computers, and while I was there, a lady brought in an HP Notebook computer. I heard her explaining that the computer was less than six months old, but the hard drive had already failed and had been replaced by Best Buy. That, she said, is an experience I do not care to repeat. It's true I could have purchased the parts on my own for less than I paid TCR, and I have assembled computers. But I considered the trade-offs. TCR did all the heavy lifting. All I had to do was install some applications. Although I was involved in the research to determine which mainboard and CPU were appropriate and how much memory, it was TCR's owner who did most of that work. And if I'd built the system myself, do you think I would have a three-year warranty on parts and labor? In other words, this wasn't a difficult decision. So you're wondering probably what are the pros and cons of 64-bit computing. Pros, mostly. The computer's a lot faster. To somebody like me who spends a lot of time in front of the computer, that's important. Nearly all of the applications I reinstalled on the 64-bit system worked as expected, In some cases, I had to download 64-bit versions of applications to replace the 32-bit version, or 64-bit updates. Ubuntu Linux is available in a 64-bit version, so I can enjoy 64-bit processing in both operating systems. But, yes, some problems did arise, and a few of them have no good solution. Although I remembered to deactivate all of the Adobe CS4 applications, I forgot about Audition, and it would not activate. I contacted Adobe, and that problem was solved within about 10 minutes. Then I found I had no access to some directories from the drives that had been brought over from the old computer. I determined that was an ownership issue, and changing file permissions resolved that problem quickly. That's something you wouldn't run into if you had an entirely new computer with all new disk drives. Keep in mind that the disk drives, three of the four in the machine, came from the old machine. I noticed that sometimes the hard drive access light stays on all the time. At the same time, I noticed that drive D had disappeared. And that's the drive with my most critical data. That was a little scary. I shut down the system, opened the case, jiggled the data and power cables on all the drives. The drive reappeared, but that may not have been the problem. In fact, I think it probably wasn't. A possibly related problem occurred on reboot without powering the system down. The system almost always sticks during the power-on self-test, showing 5A in the lower right-hand corner of the screen. When this happens, the hard drive access light stays on. If, instead of rebooting, I perform a power-off restart, the problem rarely occurs. So, unless this becomes more problematic over time, I'll probably just live with it and remember not to do power-on reboots. I found that iTunes could not back up my iPod, and if I try to sync the applications, I'm told the apps on the iPod will be deleted. Because I've paid for some of these applications, that's really not what I want to have happen. I also occasionally see this useful message, and I quote, iTunes could not connect to this iPhone. It's not an iPhone, guys. It's an iPod. Because an unknown error occurred. 0xE8000065. I'm blaming Apple for that one. Maybe the most vexing problem is that Groove cannot synchronize files and folders on a 64-bit system. Now, This is a problem only Microsoft can solve, but it seems they have little desire to do so. I knew about this problem before changing to a 64-bit operating system, but it's still annoying because Microsoft is the publisher of Groove, and it doesn't work properly with their own operating system. So far I've been unable to get the built-in sound system's ASIO driver to be recognized by Audition. It works more or less with Soundbooth. The temporary solution is to use a Sennheiser USB microphone, which is not recognized by Audition, to record in Soundbooth, and then to transfer the file to Audition for final production. And then there was the fact that Windows could not find a 64-bit driver for the Epson Perfection 3200 scanner. That's because Epson doesn't make one for this high-end, high-priced scanner. A third-party company seems to have a $40 application that will fix the problem. This wasn't entirely unexpected, but it's really bad service by Epson. And actually, I have two other possibilities. I can hook the scanner up to my notebook computer, which is still running a 32-bit version of Windows 7, or it appears that a driver does exist for Linux. So if that works, when I need to scan something, all I would need to do would be boot into Linux and do the scanning there. Oh, and WordPerfect 5.1 won't run under Windows 7 64-bit. End of the line. I have been able to run this version of WordPerfect on every computer I've owned since it was released, and that was in 1989. I knew the day would come, and it truly marks the end of an era. WordPerfect 5.1 was the best word processor ever made for DOS. Overall, no big roadblocks. If you're buying a new computer, it would be worth asking about migrating to a 64-bit operating system now. You need to be aware that some hardware may not work because the manufacturer won't have drivers for it. Printers and scanners are probably the most likely candidates. If you're buying a new computer, the external devices are the only ones you'd need to be concerned about. The internal devices, audio and video, for example, would be compatible. Upgrading an existing computer is more challenging, and I really don't recommend doing that for most people. You would, of course, need to replace the main board, the CPU, and probably the memory. Your existing video card might not be compatible. Some sound cards won't work. So if you're thinking about upgrading an existing computer from 32-bit to 64-bit, do your homework and be cautious. Google does a lot of really cool things, but it seems to me that Google Buzz isn't one of them. For starters, you seem to get Buzz whether you want it or not. Second, there are some serious security concerns. In addition to the really cool things Google does, sometimes they commit a major howler. Buzz is definitely more in the howler category. I have two Gmail accounts, and both of them asked me if I wanted to enable Buzz. Wanting to see what it was, I accepted the invitation for one account, and Buzz was added to the menu. I declined the invitation for the second account, and Buzz was added to the menu anyway. It's still not clear what this says about Google, but it certainly doesn't say much about their opinion of the people who use their products. And as bad as that is, it gets worse, a lot worse, quickly. Sign up and you will automatically follow everyone in your Gmail contact list. Even worse, anyone who looks at your profile, which is by default public, can see the entire list. Did anybody at Google think this through? Did they consider the possible repercussions? Are they totally unaware of the beating Facebook received for doing something that was far less intrusive? When you edit your profile, you'll find that by default you allow all people to contact you without showing your email address. Okay, it doesn't matter if you hide the email address, if you allow everyone in the world to contact you. What Google has just created is a spammer's paradise. Molly Wood, writing for CNET, found something that's so over the top that it's hard to believe anybody above the level of coffee room custodian cleared the plans for Buzz. What she found is, and I quote, Maybe this is specious, she said, but it really bugged me. When I enabled Google Buzz, it was using a photo on my personal Buzz page, not my profile or anything, that I'd taken on my Droid but hadn't even ever uploaded. Why? And why that photo? And what? That's just creepy as hell, she said. In short circuits, scary stories. Do you like them? I do. Here's a scary story. But this is not a scary story that you'll like, no matter how much you like scary stories. James Lewis, director of the Technology and Public Policy Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, was a guest on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross on February 10th. He described several instances in which someone broke into supposedly secure government computer systems. In late 2008, for example, a sophisticated foreign intruder broke into the Department of Defense's network that runs the Central Command, CENTCOM. It took several days for the military to remove access and kick the foreign intruders off the network. I really encourage you to read the transcript of the program or to take the 42 minutes necessary to listen to their podcast. You'll find the podcast from WHYY in Philadelphia on their website. It's near the bottom of the page. There's also a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. It's that important. I really feel you should listen to this. In 2007, the Bush administration set up the Commission on Cybersecurity for the 44th presidency. Lewis headed that group. The goal of the program was to make recommendations to whoever the next president would be about cybersecurity. The report was, of course, delivered to the Obama administration. Oh, and if you're wondering how CENTCOM's system was compromised, here's how it happened. The bad guys dropped several thumb drives around a Pentagon parking lot. People found them. People took them inside the Pentagon. And in violation of every rule of common sense... ...plugged them into their computers. Software that had been loaded on the memory sticks ran and opened a tunnel back to the people who wanted CENTCOM's information. And apparently, they got it. To me, that is scary. <coughs> I've said some nasty things about people who provide support for hardware and software. And I've also said some nasty things about Apple. This week, I needed to call Apple for support, and now I'm writing love letters. What happened? Well, here's the background. As you know, I installed a 64-bit version of Windows 7 and upgraded to the latest 64-bit version of iTunes. So when I connect my iPod Touch to the computer, the most common response is an error message that tells me an unknown problem has occurred. When I went to Apple's website, I didn't find a solution, but I found that I could call a technician or I could schedule a call later and have a technician call me. Interesting idea. Schedule a call at my convenience. So I scheduled the call for the next day, which happened to be Saturday, at 9.15 a.m. A A confirming email message said a technician would call between 9.15 and 9.30. At 9.15, the phone rang. It was a recording that asked me a few questions, then added me to a queue. Less than a minute later, I was talking to a technician. He already knew my name, and he already knew what the problem was. Within 10 minutes, we had determined the problem was not with the iPod, but with the relationship between the iPod and my hardware. It turns out that Apple devices have a problem interfacing properly with the Intel P55 Express chipset LPC interface controller. Why do these little tiny chips have such big names? In any event, Intel might have updates for this, and I should obtain the latest BIOS updates, the technician told me. This is the kind of information I could have found on my own eventually, but it would have taken hours at the very best. So now you're wondering if the problem is solved. Well, currently, no. I can make the connection work eventually, and that's good enough for this moment. Apple is working on the problem, and so is Intel. I guess that's what happens when you're on the bleeding edge of technology. Thanks for listening to Tech Biter worldwide, the podcast with an hours worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website www.techbiter.com and if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.